He was walking by the local grocery store, and he noticed there was a sign in the window indicating there was a sale on brains that week. And the prices were listed in the window. Uh, missionaries' brains, $1 a pound. Uh, missionary doctors' brains, $2 a pound. Missionary nurses' brains, $3 a pound. Bureaucrats' brains, $100 a pound. And so he went to the owner of the grocery store and says, how come bureaucrats' brains cost so much? And he said, well, if you knew how many bureaucrats we had to catch to get one pound of brains, you'd understand. Then I heard another story about a second grade uh, class, and the teacher said, now, last week class, we discussed George Washington, who was our first president. Can anybody remember what his greatest obstacle was? Kid raised his hand and says, yes, ma'am, he could not tell a lie. And, uh, <laughs> and I think what we'll discover as we go through this passage is that it's okay to poke fun at our uh, political leaders as long as we don't mean it. <clears throat> but I do think this area, like many others that Paul is talking about in chapters 12 through 16, Paul remembers in the heart of uh, the body of this epistle, which deals with how the truth of our justification and sanctification by the power of the Spirit, how this relates to the everyday practical issues of life. And he said in this area back in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that our task, first of all, is not to be conformed to the world. We must learn not to think like the world thinks in these various areas. And then secondly, we must learn to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that is, as we take in the revelation of Scripture and understand what God's perspective is on these areas, then our way of thinking begins to be changed. And I think we'll see that our thinking in this area probably will need to be challenged, just as it has in many other areas. Now, there are three commands in this uh, section, verses 1 through 7. I'd like to structure my comments around those three commands. And these three commands, incidentally, will also give us an outline of what our political obligations are as believers. First command is found in verse 1. Paul says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. That's a command, so it's not an option for uh, believers. This is an imperative. And notice that Paul says this is to be true of every person. This is not just for wimps or weaklings, but this is for macho uh, Idaho outdoorsmen and for libertarians and for homeschoolers and the rest of us. And he says every person is to be subject. I don't want to make too much of this because uh, the word soul, which is the word that's translated person here, the word soul is often used just as a figure of speech for the whole person. But Paul literally says every soul is to be in subjection to governing authorities. So this suggests that Paul is telling us that our subjection to governing authorities is to be willing and voluntary, not grudging or resentful. The word subjection is originally a military term, and it referred to the subjection of a soldier to his commanding officer. So it's clearly a term that represents a willing obedience or compliance or submission to the laws of our land. Now, most of the laws which we're asked to submit to uh, have a very good, solid, rational, common-sense base. Now, some others are rather silly. And to show you the sort of exhaustive research I do in preparing a message like this, I wanted to share with you some of the fruits of my discoveries. Here are some of the silly laws that we are asked to respond to. In Pocatello, I don't know if you knew this, but in Pocatello it is illegal to frown or look gloomy in public. (laughs) 
In Rattan, New Mexico, it is illegal for a woman to ride a horseback down a street wearing a kimono. In Kentucky, you are required by law to take a bath once per year. No more, it says, just once per year. In our own state of Idaho, it is you need a permit from the sheriff to buy a chicken after dark. So might want to see Jim Montgomery at the back before he leaves for Seattle. In Vermont, it is illegal to whistle underwater. Certain logic to that. And then to show that there are some people out there who don't want you to have any fun at all, in Bexley, Ohio, it is illegal to install slot machines in outhouses. Okay. Love to know the background on that one. But at any rate, the bulk of the legislation that we're asked to respond to does make sense, and it's designed to protect us and protect society. And Paul is asking us to give a willing compliance to these laws. Now, Paul, when Paul refers to the term governing authorities there in verse 1, he uses a parallel phrase at the end of the verse, translated in the New American Standard, those which exist, or as the King James translates it, the powers that be. In other words, Paul is asking us to submit to whatever authorities in our culture have legal standing. So this begins, of course, with the President and with the Congress of the United States, with the Idaho State Legislature, with our mayor, with law enforcement officials, with the Planning and Zoning Commission, with uh, fish and game officers, with local school boards. Now, some Christians have argued that we are only to give allegiance to our laws or to our Congress to the degree in which they conform to the Constitution. But Paul doesn't give us that out. He says our responsibility is simply to obey. And in our society in particular, we have a legislative body or a judicial body, the Supreme Court, whose task it is to determine for us when Congress and other officials are acting constitutionally. So it's our task not to sit in judgment on government or not to evaluate it, and nor is our primary task to change government, but our primary task as believers is to obey it and to submit to it. Now, what makes it difficult to do this? Well, I believe, simply put, it's just the flesh, that there's something in us that uh, resists when anybody tries to tell us what to do. Part of the problem is compounded by the fact that our country was founded on a violent overthrow of an existing authority. This is part of our political heritage of resistance and self-assertiveness and aggressiveness. And it makes it difficult for us to process a passage like this. You know, the slogan of the early colonists was, don't tread on me. We see bumper stickers on cars everywhere, question authority. And there's something about the American psyche that encourages us to challenge and resist authority at every turn. But it's just the flesh, I'm not wanting anybody to infringe on my space. We were coming back from California after a Christmas break last year. It was during the time of the NFL playoffs, and I didn't have a TV in my car, but I didn't have a radio. So I thought, oh, this is terrific. I plotted out our starting times and our lunch stops to coincide with kickoff and halftime. I got about halfway through the first quarter of the first game, and Debbie asked me, now, exactly how long is this going to last? And uh, so I explained, well, each game is about three, three hours and 15 minutes. And so we uh, had to make a, had a little family conference and decided that that was a little bit too long. So I had a brilliant solution. I stopped at, uh, at our breakfast stop and went to a drugstore, and I bought one of those little portable radios, battery-powered things with the headphones. And so I could listen to the Vikings and the Saints while Debbie and the family were listening to Nathaniel the Grublet. This was a terrific solution. 
So I'd listened to about 10 minutes of the game. I just dropped $20 on this little portable radio, and I was about uh, five minutes into the second quarter when a California Highway Patrolman pulled up alongside me and used his uh, bullhorn to uh, indicate that it was against the law to wear headphones while you're driving a car in California. Now, I just spent $20 on this radio, and I just started listening to it, and naturally, within me, just the flesh uh, reacted, and I resented the fact that this man was infringing on my space. Okay? Now, that's what makes it difficult to obey a passage like this, is because we want our independence. Now, Paul isn't saying that we cannot disagree with government, that we have to agree with everything that they do and every policy that they establish. Nor does he mean that we cannot use legal means to protest. He's not ruling out the opportunity to lobby for or against certain legislation. All of this is perfectly appropriate. But it does mean that when a law is in place, that it's our responsibility as believers to submit to it, no matter how awkward or inconvenient uh, it may be to us. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, several years ago, a young believer who's an inventor type, and uh, he was raving about this new invention he was working on. He was really excited about it, and it turned out it was uh, the next-generation radar detector. Not only would this detect radar, but it would send back a false reading to the radar detection machine. So you could be going 85, and it would send a signal back to the squad car saying you were going 65. And so I kind of scratched my head, and I just reminded him of this passage, and I just suggested, you know, you might want to rethink this, because what you're doing is marketing a product which is designed to enable people to break the law. Well, he came back to me a couple of days later with a real sheepish look on his face and says, you know, I was thinking about what you're saying, and, and you're really right, and he dropped his plans at that point. But that's the sort of attitude that we are to have, is a willing submission to the authorities and the laws of our land. Now, why are we to do this? We need a good, solid reason to do this, and Paul gives it to us at the end of verse 1. The reason we are to submit is that there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So Paul says the reason we are to submit ourselves to governing authorities is that God has placed them there. This is God's doing. He is the one who has established these authorities uh, over us. The word established means to fix or station in a set place. In preparation for this worship service this morning, there were men who came in unseen and set up these chairs and set up this podium and the microphone and the instruments and, and set them in their proper places in order that the worship service might take place. And that's a similar analogy to what God has done in the political sphere. He, his is the unseen hand that establishes authorities wherever and whoever they may be. Now, this means this is true for good rulers as well as evil ones. That even rulers like Hitler and Stalin have been established by God for his purposes. And so that's the reason, Paul says, we are to submit to them and to obey them, as they are there by God's doing. Now, this can be a comforting word to us in an election year that it's God's responsibility to establish political leaders. This keeps us from fretting and wringing our hands as we contemplate the election in November. This ultimately rests in God's hands, and we can take great comfort in that because God is the one who established these authorities. Perhaps you've been following, as I have with some interest, the um, 
uh, situation of this little storefront church out at Chinden and Eagle. Right now they're in a tussle with the local planning and zoning commission over whether they're in an area which is zoned for a church. Now all I know is what I read in the paper, so I wouldn't presume to pass any sort of judgment on them. But it's clear that biblically the primary responsibility of the leadership of that church is to comply willingly and voluntarily with the Planning and Zoning Commission. Why? Because that authority in our city has been established by God. Now, Paul draws a logical conclusion to this in verse 2. Notice his logic is irresistible. God has established authority, verse 1. Therefore, in verse 2, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation, or better, I think, judgment, will receive judgment upon themselves. Now notice he says they will receive this upon themselves. The idea is they'll have no one to blame. If someone resists authority, there are certain consequences for that, and those who resist bring this upon themselves. They have no one to blame. Now, the word condemnation or judgment is an intriguing one. We need to understand exactly what Paul means by this. He can't be talking about eternal condemnation or judgment because that's not uh, our response to authority. is not what determines that issue. So he seems to be talking about the practical kind of consequences that come upon those who resist authority. And I think what Paul means by this is not only is there judgment from the governing authorities that God has established, you do the crime, you do the time, that sort of judgment. But in addition, this is God's hand. This is God's wrath being meted out upon his subjects through the instrument or the vehicle of the civil magistrates. So this is God's way of disciplining his children. So if we fudge on our income tax and have to pay a, a penalty for that and go through the pain of an audit, this is not only the judgment of society upon us, but this is God's judgment. This is God's wrath. It's the discipline of a loving father spanking our hands for ignoring this passage of Scripture. I remember reading a story once about a, a police helicopter who was patrolling a stretch of interstate, and he spotted a speeding car and radioed to a squad car on the ground, and Squad car overtook the speeder and began writing him a citation, and the driver said, How in the world did you know that I was speeding? And the officer just went like this. And the guy just groaned and said, Oh, you mean to tell me he's turned against me too? <laughs> well, in a way, in a way, he was right. Remember uh, several years ago, there was a family in Payette, I believe it was, who actually did some time in jail for refusing to respond to the directives of the local school board. They were homeschoolers, and as a result of their resistance, spent time in jail. Now, again, I don't know all of the details in this circumstance, but it does strike me that uh, the local school board is one of the governing authorities, the powers which exist, which God has asked us to respond to. And if we do not submit to their authority because it comes from God, then we will receive judgment or condemnation. And this is the hand of God upon his children to discipline and to rebuke. Now, the one exception to this rule that we are to submit to governing authority is when to submit to governing authority would involve us in personal disobedience. If it came down to a choice between obeying God 
and obeying governing authority, if we're ever faced with that choice, then we must choose to obey God. This is what Peter told the Sanhedrin in Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than man. Shortly after Paul wrote this letter, the Christians in Rome were faced with this very choice. The Roman emperor cult developed uh, around Nero, who was the emperor at the time that Paul wrote these words, was uh, carried to even further lengths by Domitian, who came along a few years later. And during this period of time, believers were required to take an oath. Everyone in Rome was required to take an oath saying that Caesar is Lord. One of Domitian's names for himself was Lord and God. Now the believers were faced with a choice. Do I submit to what the civil magistrate wants me to do, which is to declare that Caesar is Lord and my ultimate master, or do I say that Jesus is Lord and suffer the consequences? Well, in that case, their choice was clear. They must say Jesus is Lord, must obey God rather than man. And if it comes down to that sort of a choice for us, we must choose to obey God and then willingly suffer the consequences that follow. Uh, I confess that I have sympathy with those that have bombed abortion clinics. Abortion is one of the, the most incredible modern travesties ever. More than three times the number of innocent lives have been taken in abortion clinics than were lost in the Holocaust in World War II. This is a tragedy of immense proportions. But it's not proper for God's people to resort to violence to try to undo that or to seek redress for that. And when they experience the judgment of society for their behavior, they are experiencing the judgment of God as well. Now, Paul explains further in verse 3. He says, Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Notice, by the way, that the proper sphere of government in verse 3 is behavior or deeds. In other words, it's not proper for government to seek to evaluate motives or thoughts or intents. The proper sphere of government is to get involved to measure, evaluate, and judge behavior or deeds of people. Now, Paul's argument here is quite practical. It says if you're driving down the freeway and you don't want to have to constantly be checking your rear view mirror, then keep your speed down to sonar range. If you don't want to have to fear an audit from the IRS, then use integrity or honesty in filling out your 1040 form. In fact, he says, if you do this, you will receive praise from these authorities. In fact, what will happen is the IRS guy that looks over your form will call you up. And say, you know, I was just going over your 1040 form, and I just can't believe how neat and tidy it was. I just wanted to tell you how pleased I was. Well, that probably won't happen, but... Uh, but occasionally you will read about uh, local authorities who will dispense awards for heroism or bravery or public service, and this is appropriate. This is one of the functions of government, to give praise to those who do good and render public service. Now, in verse 4, Paul goes on to tell us what the two proper functions of government are. It says in verse 4, "...it is a minister of God to you for good." But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Now before I point out the two functions of government, I think it's intriguing, first of all, to notice how government is described. 
is described as a minister of God. Twice in this verse, a minister of God. And the word minister there is the same word that we get the word deacon from. It's exactly the same word. That civil magistrates are deacons of God. He uses an even more intriguing word in verse 6 when he describes rulers as servants of God in the New American Standard. And that word that's translated servants in verse 6 is a word that's always used in the New Testament with a religious or spiritual connotation. It's the same Greek word from which we get our religious word liturgy. And it's most often used in connection with priestly activity. So what Paul is saying is that civil magistrates function in society as deacons or servants of God or as priests of God. Now this is true whether they know it or not. Of course, it's delightful when they're aware of this and they know it, but whether they know it or not, Paul says, civil magistrates function as deacons or priests of God. Now there are several implications of this for us. For one... uh, it will have some bearing on how we react to these people when we encounter them. In other words, when a cop pulls us over for going 45 in a school zone, I have been pulled over by a deacon or a priest of God. And therefore, it would be inappropriate for me to reprimand him for pulling me over and not going out and catching real criminals. It would also mean when I appear in court before a traffic judge, I'm standing before someone who is a minister or a deacon or a priest of God. Now, second implication is that this means there's nothing tawdry or shameful or dirty about public service or the political arena. Those who serve in that capacity are deacons of God. It's just as high a calling, Paul indicates, just as high a calling as the vocational pastoral ministry of teaching the scriptures. This is just as noble a service in God's behalf as the other. So if God has called you to service in this arena to run for public office, to be involved in legislative lobbying or activity, then that's a noble calling and pursue it as God directs you. For instance, in the last uh, legislative session here in Idaho, a number of Christians lobbied on behalf of legislation which would have provided greater protection for battered wives. And this is proper. This is appropriate. This is a noble sort of calling to pursue. There are a number of different pro-life organizations in our country And often they have quite distinctive purposes. Some of them exist primarily to render encouragement and ministry to unwed mothers, to encourage them to carry their pregnancies to term and to give them financial and medical and emotional counseling. Other pro-life organizations exist to make an impact on the legislative structure in our country and exist to lobby and to picket and to protest. And again, this is proper and appropriate in our culture. Now, a third implication, if these men are ministers of God and priests of God, if God is the one who has given them their authority, then we can trust God to hold them accountable for the way they exercise the authority that God has given them. Uh, Paul is not here sanctioning everything that government does or approving of everything that it does, but he is reminding us that these men serve at God's behest. They don't serve at the will of the people. They serve under the will and at the pleasure of God. And it's God's task to hold them accountable, and he will do so. If you look through history and look at some of the most violent uh, rulers who were guilty of the abuse of power, you will see the judging hand of God in every case. Nero, the man 
the uh, emperor under whom Paul was writing, who launched the first uh, severe persecution of Christians, committed suicide at the end of his life. Domitian, who followed him and instigated a second wave of persecution, he was assassinated by his own officers. You look at a Hitler in World War II who was judged by the rest of the Western world for his abuse of power. Or an Idi Amin in Uganda, likewise, judged for his abuse of power. And even in our own country, when a president like President Nixon abused his power, God stepped in to hold his minister, his priest, accountable for that abuse of power. And we can trust God to do that and not feel that it rests upon us to take this into our own hands. Now, the two functions of government that Paul indicates in this verse are, first of all, to promote the public welfare. It's a minister to you for good. And secondly, to punish wrongdoing. These are the appropriate functions of government. Now, it's easy to to take pot shots at our local officials, at our governing officials. They're very tempting targets, and nobody pretends that they're perfect. And yet, all of us in this room have received a ministry from them. They indeed, for all of us, have been a minister for good. Think about the number of services that that are ours because of these ministers of God in the public arena. Uh, We have a road system, which is the finest in the world, utilities provided to us, a good, solid law enforcement system, a judicial system that gives us redress when there is wrong, fire protection, a public education system, which is probably the finest in the world. My uh, daughter just finished kindergarten this year, learned uh, to read. She's now reading me bedtime stories. This is a tremendous ministry to my family. The the public uh, system has been a minister for good to my family. We've got an excellent park system, which enables us to enjoy with our family the open air and the beauty of God's creation. So government is indeed a minister to us for good, and that's one of its appropriate spheres. Now, the second thing that Paul points out is it's appropriate for government to punish wrongdoing. And I want you to notice the connection here with Paul's argument in chapter 13 with the end of chapter 12. He describes the civil magistrates in verse 4 as an avenger who brings wrath. A minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath. Now, where have we encountered the terms vengeance and wrath before? Well, at the end of chapter 12, where Paul says, Don't take vengeance into your own hands, but leave room for the wrath of God, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, I think the connection is an unfortunate chapter break. I think the connection is to indicate that the state, the civil magistrates, are one of the means by which God takes vengeance and protects his people. That's why uh, Doug Llewellyn is right at the end of People's Court when he says, don't take the law into your own hands, take them to court. That's good, sound biblical counsel. And it's appropriate for us as believers to use the court system, small claims court, and on the way up, to seek protection. If there's been injustice, unfairness, it's appropriate for us to appeal to this minister of God in society for protection. This is how God goes about protecting his people. About a year or so ago, we had a member of this congregation that sought to use the court system to repress the distribution of pornography in our uh, city. I got a lot of heat from this in the media and the public press, but he was doing something which was appropriate and proper. That's the way you go about handling these issues. Now, Paul also points out that the government does not bear the sword for nothing. Now, the sword is obviously a symbol for the use of force. 
So Paul is saying that it's appropriate for the civil authorities to use force to maintain public order, to quell riots and disturbances and so forth. And additionally, the sword was used to cut people's heads off. This was a means of exercising capital punishment. And this is one of the clear passages in the New Testament that indicates that the use of capital punishment as a means of redress is appropriate and something which God sanctions. Now, many Christians have lobbied against the death penalty, but I believe they're misguided in doing so. Many times they will appeal to the sixth commandment, which says, Thou shalt not murder. But it's clear if you look back at that context in the Old Testament that that's a specific prohibition against murder, not against all forms of killing. In the very next chapter, in Exodus 20 there, you will find the very first verse pre, uh, presents us, or presents the nation of Israel, with the responsibility to put certain offenders to death if they offend or transgress certain laws. So if we're to give God any credit for consistency, then the Sixth Commandment cannot be a prohibition against all forms of taking life, but only murder. So it's appropriate for the state then to use and exercise capital punishment as a means of maintaining peace and order. Now in verse 5, Paul sums up this first part of his section by giving us the two motives for obedience. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. There's two reasons to obey, he says. First of all is because of wrath. That is, you're afraid of what will happen if you get caught. And if that's the reason you obey, Paul says, that's fine. That's good. That's an acceptable motive for obedience. But Paul says, don't stop there. Also obey for conscience sake. In other words, simply because it is the right thing to do. You probably heard the story about the man who sent a letter to the IRS with a check for $300. And he told them in the letter, you know, my conscience is killing me. I cheated on my income tax. Here's $300. And if I still feel guilty, I'll send you the rest I owe you. (laughs) But the believer is to obey simply because it's the right thing to do. Now, quickly summing up the second and third commands in verse 6, the second command is to pay taxes. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom. The word that Paul uses for tax here refers to uh, a head tax or an income tax and property tax. The word for custom here referred to a whole system of indirect taxes, customs and so forth. The parallel for us would be sales taxes, taxes on gasoline and so forth. And Paul says the second responsibility of a believer is to pay his taxes. Now, we're to do this willingly and not grudgingly, he says, recognizing that these men are ministers or priests of God. It's an intriguing parallel that Paul draws here. When we come in to worship here on Sunday mornings, we contribute willingly and cheerfully to support the ministers of God. Now, Paul says that's essentially what your tax dollars are. They are a means of supporting God's servants or ministers in the public sphere, in order that they may devote themselves to this very thing, give themselves wholly over to this task of promoting the public welfare years before he could send it to the right, the right people. 
But this is where God wants to bring us, that when we make out that check to the IRS, that they withhold the percentage of their tax dollars that went to support the military as a form of protest. Now, what that fails to take into account is that when Paul told these Romans to pay their taxes, the bulk of those tax dollars, more a greater percentage even than our tax dollars, went to support the greatest and most extensive military machine in the history of the world. So we're not giving that out. It's not up to us to judge how the tax dollars are spent. That's really God's responsibility. Our job is to willingly to pay them. Now, this would be true even if abortion were funded with federal tax dollars. It would still be our responsibility, as distasteful as that might be, to render to all what is due them. The government has a right to collect that tax. It's our responsibility to pay it. Now, the third command even gets a little stickier in the end of verse 7. He says, We are to render fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor. Paul here is asking us to have an attitude of respect toward public officials, not only when we talk to them, but also when we talk about them. I don't know how you feel about this spate of uh, kiss-and-tell books that have been written about the Reagan administration, but it strikes me as something kind of uh, tawdry about all that. Remember when uh, John F. Kennedy was president, he uh, was talking to a broker in the middle of his term and said to this broker, he says, you know, if I weren't uh, president, I would certainly be buying stocks. And the broker said, well, if you weren't president, I'd be buying stocks. (laughs) But our attitude, in contrast, is to be one of of respect and politeness. David uh, provided a terrific example of this in his relationship with Saul. You remember that uh, Saul had forfeited his claim to the spirit, forfeited his claim to the throne, and was seeking David's life. But David recognized that he was still the Lord's anointed and refused to take vengeance into his own hands and spoke to Saul and about Saul unfailingly with respect and courtesy, even though the man was out to to take his life. If you remember in Acts 23, when Paul appeared before the Sanhedrin, evidently Paul was uh, nearsighted, a bit myopic, and the high priest spoke to him, and Paul couldn't see him clearly enough to realize that he was wearing the vestments of the high priest, and so Paul called him a whitewashed wall. I still haven't figured out quite what's offensive about that, but it was a name. He called him a name. And he was immediately informed that he had been speaking to the high priest. And Paul's instant response was to apologize for that because he says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Well, these are our three responsibilities that Paul outlines for us here. Uh, First of all, we're to obey government. Secondly, we are to pay our taxes. And thirdly, we are to honor and respect our public officials. Now, if you are doing those three things, you are doing everything that God requires of you as a believer. Anything beyond that is optional, something for you to work out between you and God. Now, there is a fourth responsibility that's outlined for us in 1 Timothy, and that is to pray for our public officials. And what I would like to do in conclusion this morning is to lead you in a prayer. I will ask you to pray along with me silently in your heart. And this is a prayer that I have taken from the Book of Common Prayer. This is the prayer book of the Anglican Church in England and the Episcopalian Church here in the United States. But uh, this prayer captures the essence of what Paul is talking about and gives us a model for how we are to pray for our public officials. 
So what I would like to do in closing today is have you all stand with me, and I will lead you through this prayer together, and with that, we'll be done. Let's pray together. O Lord, our Governor, the mighty ruler of the universe, we commend this nation to your merciful care, that being guided by your providence, we may dwell secure in your peace. Grant to the President of the United States wisdom and strength to know and to do your will. Fill him with the love of truth and righteousness and make him ever mindful of his calling to serve this people in the fear of you. We pray for the Senate and representatives in Congress assembled that you would be pleased to direct and prosper all their consultations to the advancement of your glory, the good of your church, and the safety, honor, and welfare of your people. We humbly beseech you to bless the courts of justice and the magistrates in all this land and give unto them the spirit of wisdom and understanding that they may discern the truth and impartially administer the law in the fear of you alone through him who shall come to be our judge, your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.